Hi there, Making Contact listeners. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you believe, like we do, that hearing people's direct voices on the radio is a powerful way to impact public discussions about immigrants and immigration, then help make that possible by donating whatever you can to our crowdfunding campaign at radioproject.org slash crowdfunding. Thanks. Here's the show. I'm Jasmine Lopez, and this is Making Contact. Activist movements of the 1960s and 70s resemble many of the movements happening today. Discrimination, press freedom, and police brutality continue to be among the issues covered by these movements. The radical Chicano movement of the late 1960s was one of these and Mexican-American journalist Ruben Salazar chronicled much of it. Salazar was killed by a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy during the National Chicano Moratorium March against the Vietnam War in 1970. On this edition of Making Contact, we hear the second half of the documentary Ruben Salazar, Man in the Middle, produced and directed by Philip Rodriguez, City Projects, and PBS. We'll hear from people in Salazar's life, as well as readings from his own journal entries. Salazar was born in Mexico, but raised in El Paso, Texas. During the 1960s, he worked as a war correspondent in Vietnam for the Los Angeles Times, and later headed the Newspapers Bureau in Mexico City. It was in 1969 that he returned to Los Angeles, where the Chicano movement was in full swing. The boys wear brown berets, zapata mustaches, and long hair. The girls sport miniskirts and Mexican serapes. To belong to this group, one must speak Spanish. The guru of this Chicano youth conference is Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez, a former prize fighter. It was a very radical crowd, a very radical time. That's Chicano activist Ernesto Vigil. And people were speaking very fervently, very with a lot of emotion, a lot of times with a lot of anger. Ruben and I used to talk about the leadership. What the hell are these guys up to? A lot of the Chicano leaders were into making some money. Salazar's friend, Phil Montes. These guys are phonies. He totally had disdain for some of these guys that were looking after themselves with the cloak of community. Former president and general manager of KMEX, Danny Villanueva. And he said, you know, they're false prophets. There are too many people, including the Mexican-Americans, who have only one thing in mind when conducting their crusades, their own personal advantage. Chicano leadership, they came after Ruben. They didn't want Ruben to write without checking with them. They wanted to exploit you. Former LA Times reporter Bill Drummond. I mean, that was their assumption, that you were there to carry their water. I used to go at it all the time with the Black Panthers. These guys who were kind of outside the system, essentially they are desperados. So that conditions their whole discourse. And that was not Ruben. A well-trained reporter can be a combination poet, advocate, and thorn in the side of the establishment. Our first guest is all of these things and much more. Ruben changed. Journalist Bob Navarro. You felt something deep inside. Something woke him up. 
Ruben said to me, the trouble with Mexicans is they're struggling to become white. And he said, why? Gringos don't have anything on Mexicans. The successful Mexican-American wallows in a vacuum. He resigns his Mexicanness to becoming a half-assed American. But then what can you do? There's no such thing as a real Mexican-American. The hyphen strips both words of meaning. Certainly, Ruben's journalism became somewhat more personal. That's journalist Earl Shores. Ruben was starting to take more and more of an interest himself. Former LA Times editor Bill Thomas. In assigning himself Latino affairs. He was more and more involved in what the Mexican community was all about. His eyes fully opened to the injustices that were around him. He became more of an activist. What we need is a Chicano Voting Rights Act. We don't really have that. You see, for instance, in, Los, in, in, in Southern California, I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you why. We really need it. When he stepped out of this kind of confining persona of representing the institution, and he began to talk about what he really felt about things, people were shocked. And so it's foolish to think that eventually we will melt into that mythical melting pot, which is a myth. We never will. They could not believe that he was harboring these kinds of almost class-conscious thoughts. We were here first, and we're just not going to melt. Once you begin to tell the white man what you really think, it shocks him. I sometimes get irritated with my colleagues in the news media. Having ignored Mexican-Americans for so long, they seem impatient about the complexities of the story. He had an opportunity to write about Mexicans, and he did. And I would suspect that the Los Angeles Times wanted him to do that in a toned-down way. You know, write about mariachis and, you know, tamales and all that bull and and not get involved in what he did. It was a difficult time when, to, when you realize that assimilation should not be your goal. It's, it, it, your goal should be to do what you're capable of doing to your fullest extent. That should be your goal. We were a brand new business. News was a luxury that we took care of last. We used to paste La Opinion, which was three days late, and read it on the air. Tiny station with no money, with no resources, with management that really didn't care about the community. KMX was doing nothing. That's what they were doing. Bringing in Ruben Salazar, an established journalist, would take us to the next level. On my last day at the Times, some of the guys in the city room gave me looks of those who know a friend is making a terrible mistake. K.M. who? asked one. I mean, it was money, probably some degree of fame, but it was uh, principally he could use more money. Everybody working for a newspaper could use more money. We ran his column at the same time that he was doing the 
KMEX stuff. And it was good for both of us. I did have a difficult time understanding, and I, I brought it up. I asked you, what possesses you to leave a job at one of the top newspapers in the world and go to work at a small television station, Spanish language at that? The most important thing about my move to me was that I was uh, frustrated. I wanted to really communicate with the people uh, about uh, whom I had been writing for for so long. The feeling among us was that we had to give coverage to this burgeoning new movement. Ruben had now become the person who chronicled that movement. Television is a big deal, even on a Mexican-American station. It engages people's emotions in a way that a print page does not. Television escalated the magnitude of his message. I'm only advocating uh, the Mexican-American community, uh, just like the general media is, uh, is advocating, really, our economy, our country, our way of life. to delight in controversy. He would pin hate letters above his desk. He said, they're thinking. I got them thinking. I certainly do not appreciate being singled out as brown. I don't care what you call yourself, but I don't like the word Chicano. Are you a Chicano? If you are, my sincere and deepest sympathies to you. I, for one, know exactly what I am. I am an American of Mexican descent. Who, Mr. Salazar, are the Chicanos? You, my dear sir, are an idiot. The conservative, older Hispanics didn't want us to use the word Chicano on the air. They didn't want us to give them as much airtime as we were giving them. And, and Ruben accelerated it. When he wrote about the Sanchez brothers that were killed, that was the beginning of his problems. The guy was laying on the ground with a broken leg and out the window they popped him. Salazar did interviews with survivors of that shootout. Journalist Steve Weingarten. He did a good enough job that the police got indicted. The police visited Salazar afterwards, and then he wrote about it in the LA Times column. Two policemen visited me to express their concern. They warned me about the impact the interviews would have on the police department's image. Besides, they said, this kind of information could be dangerous in the minds of Barrio people was a double slap to the uh, LAPD. I said, you ought to watch yourself, Ruben. He said, no, you got to stop that kind of crap. Anyone who has worked a police beat knows that policemen tend to have a very different attitude toward enforcing the law, depending on the social, financial, and racial makeup of the people they deal with. Ruben didn't like cops. He really didn't like cops. Any guy who had been a police reporter and has a distrust of cops, because you see what they do. My old friend Nelson Algren wrote that a cop said, if you ain't guilty, how come you're bleeding? They look at you like you're nothing. You're just Mexican. Journalist Guillermo Restrepo. 
and they stop you in the middle of the street for nothing, and they, they enjoy doing that. We have a picture of policing in that era that was much more brutal than it is today. That's L.A. County Attorney Julie Rulin. And much less accountable. I might get in trouble with people in the department for saying it, but to say that there was brutality at the time, I think, is kind of undisputed. The LAPD, as you know, is very image conscious. It's been that way forever. And anybody that kind of disparaged that was in for a lot of trouble. That was a difficult transition, you know, where suddenly this relationship we had changes and now you're going to challenge the authority of this office. I'm sure that fed into a lot of the tension that Mr. Salazar felt and got pushback from Chief Davis and from Sheriff Pitches. He was called to Chief Davis' office. Davis was telling Ruben he wasn't supposed to say those things. And Ruben answered back. I'm telling the truth. Ruben believed in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You and I know that freedom of speech is limited. You can say anything you want as long as you don't step on some big shot's toes. Ruben Salazar had real concerns about being followed that he expressed very clearly to the people around him. He did tell me something that I will never forget. He said the police had phoned him and said, you better stop stirring up the Mexicans. Ruben said, I have a problem with the LAPD. I said, what's the problem? He says, well, they came to see me and they said that uh, Mexicans aren't ready for my kind of reporting and they want me to stop. He had a right to be alarmed and that's part of the price you pay. You know, when you stick your head out of the foxhole, there's somebody that's gonna take a shot at you. Verbally, certainly, maybe they might even do it for real. How does Salazar's problem with the LAPD escalate? We'll find out more after the break. You've been listening to an excerpt from Ruben Salazar, Man in the Middle, produced and directed by Philip Rodriguez, City Projects, and PBS. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. This was a march against the high rate of Latino deaths in the Vietnam War. Earlier generation Latinos had been very proud of high percentage of involvement in World War II and Korea. So the system sent young Chicanos to the front lines, to the most dangerous positions where their highest attrition rates. It was people of color whose sons were dying in numbers out of proportion in the overall population. We knew more people who were dying and coming home in boxes. We had more at stake. It was a crowd shaping up to be the largest march in LA history. They were taking a stand, they were opposing the war, they were opposing discrimination. I thought these kids in the march were heroes in the making. 
It was a Saturday, very, very hot day in August. And uh, I got there early, as did Ruben, and uh, we spoke, compared notes a little bit, and then we marched together for a good part of the demonstration, which was huge and very peaceful. Numbers were big, day was beautiful, families were there. Wedding party leaving San Alfonso's church had joined the crowd. It was that kind of happy day. My boss said, tomorrow we want you to be over there and cover this parade. Parade, in my mind, equal demonstration. Demonstration equal destruction. That's former LA Times photographer Boris Yarrow. In this social revolution, everybody has rights and everybody has rocks and everybody has riots. There was huge amounts of people showing up, some of them thinking it's a party, and by the time they get there, some of them are drunk, some of them are not. I remember Ruben said to me, there's some kids out there throwing bottles and rocks, and the sheriffs are looking to, to move in. Oh, uh, they want to speak Spanish around here. They were people saying, hey, now's my chance to lob a bottle. They start throwing stones against windows and start looting. And then the police start to move. And as each group of police arrived, they were greeted by rocks and bottles. They didn't like the politics of what we were doing, and they didn't like the people who were doing it. And they came to show us that they would limit our ability to conduct ourselves in a peaceful manner according to the rights that we allegedly have. It was an incredible assault. Former editor and photographer at La Raza newspaper, Raul Ruiz. They attacked with batons, they attacked with uh, tear gas, and that caused a panic. They drove up within that entire area, just jumped out of the car, run up, and started hitting people with their clubs. It was not a Chicano riot, it was a sheriff riot. As an earnest young Maoist, we used to live with a lot of dictums. U.S. imperialism can't declare war on Vietnam unless it also fights the American people. And what I saw at the moratorium that day with the police response was, in fact, the system declaring war on its own people. The official Sheriff's Department line on that was, was set out to be a peaceful demonstration and that there were instigators and people coming in, handing out bottles, distributing this inflammatory material and trying to incite this kind of violence. You know, in the end, I think they were just really underprepared for what happened that day. And they had to end up calling in resources and Tom Wilson was among those. This is Sergeant Tom Wilson. August the 29th, 1970, I was assigned to respond to East Los Angeles Station to a major disturbance. When I first went to East L.A., you know, I wasn't aware of all this subversive behavior. Former L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy Tom Wilson. I thought it was outsider agitation more than anything else. Were there 
intelligence officers in the crowd? I'm sure that there were. I'm sure that there were undercover sheriff's department and LAPD officers, probably federal officials in the crowd, there to gather intelligence, there to see who's who in this movement. It was getting very dangerous. Ruben and I started walking down and we revolver. We started in the left-hand side of the street going down, and he suddenly says, let's go back to the other side. He did it twice. He says, more than once, somebody is following us. Ruben Salazar may very well have been followed that day, and there may have been agents tailing him. I just don't know. One of the reasons to get into the silver dollar was to get rid of somebody that was following us. He thought that it was safe. I have a beer. It was kind of confusing what was going on. That's witness Jimmy Flores. When I looked to the west, you couldn't see nothing. It was all smoke. And then I looked east, and I could see a little guy with a vest on. He's pointing in our direction. The man in the red vest, he's a mysterious figure in this, in this whole story. He reported the man with the gun has gone into the Silver Dollar Cafe. I was trying to direct traffic. I was doing my good deed as a citizen. I was around the side with the crowd control, and deputy come running back there and told me he had men that ran in the bar with guns. That's ludicrous. There was no weapon. There was a calm afternoon inside that bar. This guy in the red vest, he's a busybody. Well, I was right there at the corner of Laverne and Whittier, right in front of the entrance of the Silver Dollar. I just thought, why are all these deputies gathering around here? So I took pictures of the deputies inching their way towards the Silver Dollar across the street. We're right in the front door of the Silver Dollar. When a deputy comes around the corner, he had a shotgun. He says, get inside, get inside. I had this deal where I sized up things. I always felt like, you know, you got a problem. If you come up with a solution, you no longer have a problem. Deputy Wilson got the projectile loaded in his tear gas gun. There are these two different kinds of projectiles. There's the flight right and the speed heat. And the flight right says explicitly not to be fired in a crowd. They say this is an issue of dispute, but deputies shouted warnings. If they had told me anybody to come out with your hands in the air, we would have done that. I uh, crouched down and looked underneath a curtain that was covering the doorway. And we sat and we asked for the beer. 
We didn't have a clue as to what was going on outside. I then elected to fire tear gas inside the bar. And all of a sudden, this blast comes through. The room was full of gas. I thought, we're going to get killed in here. We ran out the back door. The lady came out first. She was closer to the door, and I came out after her. And Ruben didn't come out. The two directions of Ruben's life were portrayed after his death. His body lay in state in the heart of East LA. We drove up to Boyle Heights, and there was this huge line wrapped around the block, inching forward. That's Salazar's daughter, Stephanie Salazar Cook. Everyone was Mexican. They buried Salazar, not in East LA, but in Newport Beach, about 65 miles south of Los Angeles in Orange County. Everyone was middle class, Anglo, suburbia. I really wanted to know more about who did the shooting and why was the shooting, we know, the usual stuff. Why did this happen? The LA Times wanted answers and they wanted to pin it on somebody. The Sheriff's Department and law enforcement resisted that. We never got anything that I can recall out of the Sheriff. So we demanded an inquest. It's a coroner's inquest. Coroner's concerned with the death of this individual. What happened to this person that was killed? Now the inquest, I think, was for the purpose of diffusing a lot of the criticism that was going on, and I think it was something that the Sheriff's Department was going to use to validate the actions that they took. Most of the opening day's testimony dealt with Sheriff's deputies' accounts of how the riot started, but there was virtually no mention of circumstances surrounding the death of Ruben Salazar. During the inquest, it was mostly indicting the community. Now there's a sign over there that says, Viva Che. Can you see that sign? They tried to derail me. They made the claim that I was a communist. Was he a Prime Minister Castro's man? The inquest was just a circus. If you have something to say, please give your name. Otherwise, I'll have to ask you to leave. Now, anyone who wishes to be a witness will give his name to Mr. Bailey and will be glad to call him. I testified in the morning. A man jumped up and started screaming. This room was polluted with perjury, and you know it. And he had uh, pointed directly at me like that. Looked like a 45. I had the, the tear gas gun, and I loaded the weapon because I figured if he was going to shoot me, I was going to get him at least once, you know. Somebody hit him and turned him sideways, and I could tell that he had a magazine rolled up instead of a gun. That's how quick I usually react to things. He testified he had been trained in the use of tear gas, but the first time he ever fired a certain tear gas gun was on August 29th, the day of the East Los Angeles riot. I was going to testify. And they said, we'll call you and schedule you an appointment. 
I never got called. And I kept calling, oh yeah, they're going to schedule you an appointment. And nobody called. The inquest was recessed earlier than usual because it ran out of witnesses. But what this hearing... The inquest was a band-aid to cover what should have been a full-blown investigation. Uh, I wish you would pay attention. <laughs> the jury makes the decision. Well, I, it seems to me that you would have to try to follow the line. Uh, uh, Go right ahead. I'm listening. The inquest uh, didn't answer very many questions, rather. Simply, what we already knew, that uh, he was killed by another person. The DA takes a look at the case and says, we're not filing criminal charges. We don't find that there was any criminal intent here. And that was the end of the story, as far as the sheriff was concerned. You've been listening to the radio version of the documentary, Ruben Salazar, Man in the Middle, produced and directed by Philip Rodriguez, City Projects, and PBS. The producers of this film succeeded in forcing the LA County Sheriff's Department to release its files on the death of Ruben Salazar. To find out more and get the link to watch the full documentary, visit our website at radioproject.org. Like Making Contact on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.